All right, go to the Lord in prayer and just ask for his favor on this preaching of his word tonight. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your word, but we need your help to understand it. We need your help to interpret it. And so we do pray, Lord, that you would grant us now understanding and interpretation. To the glory of your name we pray. Amen. Well, it is a privilege to close out the Lord's Day with you this evening by taking one last moment together to reflect on the Lord's Word. As we've been thinking today on the essence of time and its relationship to our lives and our understanding of what season of time we are experiencing, our text this evening will zoom out a little and lay emphasis on the time of redemptive history we currently find ourselves in. That is the day of salvation to aid us in our reflection, we'll be looking at the book of Galatians, chapter 6, verse 9. So please, if you want to follow along, feel free to open your Bibles to that point, And we will reflect on it together. It reads, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap, if we do not give up. From this text, I want to frame our time together using three considerations. First, we'll consider what the good is, which we ought to do. And second, we'll see what admonishment we need related to this good. And lastly, we will consider what expectations we should have in doing this good. So first, let us consider what the good is. Our present generation appears very interested in doing good. Hot in the social discourse are terms like social justice. I'm not even sure what people mean by that phrase sometimes. But without doubt, everyone is keen to flex their vocabulary by including it. Perhaps I'm guilty of that right now. Our younger generations who have come of age and are entering the workforce and other areas of cultural influence, they all are eager to feel that what they do is good. They want their workplaces to be less about products and services primarily and rather that they be places that are doing good to their communities whilst producing goods and services. Older generations are characterized with the good they do through establishing security or stability that frees a man or a woman to pursue happiness and fulfillment. Rigorous institutions with the right structure and processes will will safeguard and ensure the right tools for societies to thrive together. The focus of the good can swivel from humanity to ecology People prioritize their resources towards what kind of products and services they consume in relation to how they affect the good of the physical world around them. They ground such priorities in the benefit they are to their fellow man with intentions of cleaner air and preservation of greenscapes for future generations. All of these, of course, do have a strain of the good in them. But is this the good that the Apostle Paul has in mind? Should this be the good that Christians focus on? In some quadrants of Christendom, this could appear to be the case. The number of ministries and acts of services we see Christians vocalizing through yard signs seem to indicate that Christianity is in lockstep with all the prior mentioned perceptions, whether it's social justice or specific theological amendments to political policies or institutions. However, these, at least in this present age, seem to have a reactive sense to it of a us too as if they are merely jostling for a position of attention that says, hey, we're about these priorities too. It's almost as if they are scared that the natural world, by demonstrating good behavior, 
apart from God will lead everyone to think they do not need God. And here, I suspect, is where we encounter the heart of the question. The good as behavior apart from God versus the good that is which depends on God and is rooted in him. Verse 8 of Galatians 6, right before our verse this evening, describes the principle for us by casting our good efforts into what comes of them. The image is agricultural, or like gardening. What we sow, we reap. Or as verse 8 puts it, for the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. The good we will be contemplating has a quality that typically reflects motive and expectations. Why are we doing what we do? And what do we expect to come of it? In the way verse 8 contrasts it, it's between that which is to the flesh versus that which is to the spirit. And what comes of the action is either corruption or eternal life. But to whom? Whom are the beneficiaries and objects of these outward-focused actions? Is it just other Christians? Well, verse 12 clearly articulates that for us. It reads, uh, sorry, verse 10. So then, as we have opportunity... Let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Therefore, the good Christians ought to do is the kind of good which trusts in the Spirit of God to bring forth eternal blessings to the recipients. And that good should be done to everyone as opportunity arises, but with special emphasis towards fellow believers. So second, let us consider the admonishment Christians need when doing good. Look at what the text says. Let us not grow weary of doing good. Now here is to be found instruction for the cautious saint. There appear to be two implications worth reflecting on. First is that it implies that Christians often start off strong. This may not be too surprising. I suspect that many of you sitting in this room recall with fondness the swelling joy and relief that the gospel brought to your souls. As the shackles of bondage fell from your hands and feet, You experienced the freedom it was now to use them for the good of others. You may recall the surge of energy that sprang out of your shifting view of reality as you realized the implications of gospel truths out of the here and now, and they motivated you to action out of love and concern for the people in your life. Now for some, such a description of the start of the Christian life also signals a cautionary tale, a warning as one remembers the parable of the soils and the account of the soil type that received the gospel with joy and springs up quickly but ultimately doesn't last. In our text, this may be the concern of Paul as he writes to the Galatians, who in chapter 4 earlier, in verses 14 and 15, are described as having received the proclamation of the gospel and Paul himself with sacrificial eagerness, but were now being undermined by the circumcision faction amongst them. Paul asked them in chapter 3, by having started in the spirit, were they now trying to be perfected in the flesh? And this leads us to the main admonishment in our text, and the simple and the second implication of the words do not grow weary, which is we can grow weary. As we confess before the Lord God, we do grow weary indeed. For some of us, like the Galatians, we turn quickly from the task. So what are some reasons for growing weary? Here are six reasons for thinking over. First, it is hard. 
I'm just going to throw this up first and foremost. We are weak creatures. What's worse is we live in a time that shelters us in our weakness. Giving ourselves for others drains us of our strength and also our emotional tanks. This in and of itself doesn't surprise us until we experience it. And when we do, whispers and suggestions to stop serving others start to sound less self-serving than we originally thought. In fact, as the world puts it, this would be self-caring, and, that would be your, and it should be your priority. What good are you to others if you're next to dead, is the suggestion. Now, of course, like all deceptions, there is truth here. But wow, we reach this point far too quickly, it seems, in reality. Second, it costs us our time. Doing good to others not, not only takes time away from us, but it often asks for that slice of time at the worst possible point in time. Now, we exclaim, they want me to prepare a service plan or prayer for tomorrow? I need to go out and clean the church in this weather? They want me to serve in the nursery for how long? And these are all in the context of an age and culture that has, time, that has a time management problem and seeks to solve it by saying, mine. My time is for me, my interests, my family, my close friends. Third, we don't always see immediate results. This is another aspect exasperated by our present age, the age of immediacy. You want to watch a movie? Sit down and push some buttons. It's not free? Push two more buttons and it's available. One-day bathroom remodeling services. Same-day delivery. If it can't be had quickly, it's probably not important to have it all. Or so we think. And we bring this mentality to the encouragement we want out of doing good. Yes, being blessed with rare occasions of immediate fruit is wonderful, but it's hardly normative, so we shouldn't expect these immediate results. Fourth, we are enticed and distracted by things of the world. You rarely need to tell a person to chase after what interests them. They have all the energy in the world to pursue things that are close to their heart and mind. Since we are in this world, and having come out of it, this plays against us. We are distracted by our old interests, and they divert us away from the spiritual good we ought to do. Furthermore, worldly motives and methods often make more sense to us than biblical ones. We are often hindered from obeying the truth, as the Galatians were, even after they were once running well. Fifth, we use our freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Some Christians, having received an emphasis of freedom in the gospel from works, are inclined to conclude that no works are required at all. And where they might have exhibited positive fruit earlier in their journey, those have petered out over the course of time under the thought that they have no necessary value anymore. Six, we encounter persecution and are put off by it. This point elicits sympathy in us. Why would we criticize Christians for neglecting doing good in the face of persecution and hardship? The answer to that lies in the fact that the New Testament is replete with encouragement to endure in the face of suffering. Persecutions and sufferings are described as inevitable. This point could well be the reason the Galatians were stumbling over the topic of circumcision. In verse 12, Paul writes that those who are forcing circumcision do it only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. So to wrap up this point, we see that the Christian, with all the benefits and resources at his disposal, is susceptible to growing weary in their doing good. 
And this is instructive for us as we undertake self-inquiry and self-examination. Let us not think we are above all these pitfalls, but may we, with prayerful watchfulness, acknowledge our weakness and further entrust ourselves to the strength that only God can provide so that we will endure. Thirdly, let us consider what expectations Christians should have in doing good. As we turn back to our text, we read that it says, In due season we will reap. Combined with the command to not grow weary, there should be an expectation that we are in this for the long haul. We perceive this as one thinks in the word season. We are all familiar with the seasons, spring, summer, fall, winter. They cycle on and on. We count our history by their passing, year by year. And so it is when it comes to doing good. We are to do it, season after season, without growing weary. For it is God's design that in due time it will come to bear the harvest we hope for. And not only does the word season evoke the idea of the passage of time, but it also signifies a particular time. And that particular time is the right time. Like strawberries in the springtime or apples in the fall, there is an appropriateness to when what is sown to the Spirit is reaped. So what counsel can we derive from this? Well, as much as we can control the seasons or hasten the ripening of fruit, well, so much so can we hasten God's divine purposes and quicken his divine, divine decrees. We are helplessly at his mercy on this one, and that is a good thing, because we would undoubtedly botch things up otherwise. Aside from the expectations of time, we should be encouraged that our text indicates that there is gain to be had for our efforts, for it says we will reap. In God's economy, the doing of spiritual good will provide a return on the investment of whatever time, effort, sacrifice, or hardship you put in. This is the way it is, because this is the way God works. When his word goes out, it accomplishes all it intends and does not come back empty. Consider this point in the life and death of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As we read that well-fingered section of Isaiah 53, verse 8 tells us how our Lord appeared to be cut out from his generation, as if his efforts left no lasting legacy. It reads, by oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut out, cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of his people? But then later we read in, verse, in chapter 56, testifying to the blessings of the many who by Christ's death are welcomed into the household of God, saying, the Lord God who gathers, out, gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. This is but one example of how the Lord Jesus patiently entrusted his efforts to the Father with confidence that in time they will reap the intended blessing. Now, in our closing moments together, let us look at the final words of our verse. They read, if we do not give up. If we do not give up. Well, I ask you, why would we give up, given we have such a generous witness and testimony in Jesus of these things? Who but Jesus did all that was ever really good? He lived his life in obedience to all the law, even subjecting himself to the curse of the law for sin although he himself was without sin. And he did it willingly for rebels like you and me, so that by faith in him, 
we might have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, peace with God the Father, and pleasure forevermore in his presence. Who but Jesus patiently endured all things for the sake of the plan of redemption. He was humbled from heavenly glory and faithfully endured life in this fallen world, submitting himself to sinful parents and being numbered among sinful people. And yet he did not grow weary, but instead it was his joy to do the work of his Father. Who but Jesus entrusted all his works to his Father for the fruit that they would produce, that out of, his, out of the anguish of his soul, he would make many to be accounted righteous. And so, church, let us not grow tired of doing spiritual good to each other or to any as opportunity arises. There is blessing in both the gift of service itself and the joy of participation that can be missed out on if you give up. Remember that this is what you were saved for, good works that God prepared in advance for you to do. So be encouraged. This is a privilege. It is honorable work. There is joy to be found in it. Deep satisfactions for both the reward and the reward of persevering. It all magnifies Christ because he enabled it, and the act of doing good glorifies him. It is for him, it is from him, and it is for him. May God give us strength to do good. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, all glory be to you, Lord. You are the all-wise God. Your ways are inscrutable. In your kindness, you have invited us into your plan of salvation, both to be the recipients of your infinite blessing, as well as to serve as instruments of the spread of the gospel and of well-doing to others. Give us joy as we see you bring, as you, as we see you bring fruit in all our efforts that are sown to the Spirit. And may that cause us to glorify and magnify Christ all the more in our hearts. To his glory, in his name we pray. Amen.